Chuck and Julie, bringing you the truth straight up. I'm Julie Hagan. I'm working at- an Emmy-winning former investigative reporter, a highly successful trial attorney, and publisher of a major Denver area newspaper. They've been partners as talk show hosts and in marriage as parents for over 10 years, providing thought-provoking information, opinion, and entertainment live, local, and interactive. Everyone's voice is always welcome on the Chuck and Julie Show. Hey, welcome to the Chuck and Julie Show, Truth Straight Up. So Chuck and Julie are out with their kid, watching him play golf, caddying, driving the cart around, hopefully having a great time. I hope they're getting good weather. I live on Monument Hill, and it sounds like thunderstorms are coming in. So hopefully they have good weather and playing some good golf, enjoying themselves. I hope everybody had a great 4th of July. I did. I was at the Monument Parade. I always help out every year directing traffic for the parade. Good flybys. But by the time the parade starts, I'm so tired, I usually take off and go home and take a nap on the 4th because of all the work I do helping to set up for the parade. But hopefully everybody had a great 4th. Everything's wonderful. Um, Hey, what a surprise. They found cocaine in the White House. I am shocked that they found a bag of cocaine. Of course, I want to know how much. In the West Wing, the working part of the White House, they find cocaine. If I worked for Joe Biden, I would probably be on cocaine as well. It's probably the only way I could, you know, make it through the day. Has anyone thought maybe to ask Hunter if it's his? You have a confirmed drug user in the White House basically living there so they can't subpoena him to have to go do depositions or whatever for all the kids that he has. But I'm thinking maybe it's Hunter Biden's, but it could be anybody in the West Wing. Basically, the stuff that I've heard them say, I think half of them are probably on drugs themselves. But I want to touch on a few things, um, political-based a little bit at first. Then we're going to bring on John St. Augustine again, like we always do in this forum. And we're going to talk about search warrants and stuff. And we've learned some new things here recently that I think that you'll find kind of interesting. Maybe talk about a few cases and stuff where we've had issues with search warrants. It's kind of interesting. As a detective, I've wrote hundreds of search warrants and arrest warrants during my career. And now working predominantly for defense I find all these issues with how these warrants are coming about and how the government law enforcement officers are kind of skirting around the Constitution and some rulings that Colorado has had concerning some of these search warrants. But for me personally, uh, you know, the Supreme Court rulings that they had last week, one that I've been watching since last November and was just kind of amazed was the whole affirmative action in colleges and basically saying it's okay to discriminate against Asians, but not Blacks and Hispanics. I find that very racist um, myself. My wife is Asian. She was born in Taiwan. So I kind of get it. I have We have two boys. And, you know, our, our boys are pretty smart. So when it came time to apply for college, our oldest knew... Um, that checking that Asian box was not a good thing. He already knew this before I knew this. And I I think before my wife even knew that colleges were discriminating against Asian Americans, that if he checked that box Asian, because normally, you know, they always say, 
if you can check a minority box, it's always to your advantage, you, you know, to say, hey, I'm a minority. You, you know, there's some benefits behind that. But actually checking the Asian box works against you in colleges. So my son already knew that with, without any of this stuff going on. This is about five, six years ago when he when he went into college. So he actually checked, which was legit. He checked Pacific Islander because um, my wife, his mother, was born in Taiwan, which is an island in the Pacific. And so he knew to check that, to to try to offset that um, bias when it comes to Asians trying to go to major colleges. And he was pre, I mean, pre-selected at the Colorado School of Mines, went there, had a great education. You know, and I asked my boys all the time, you know, in high school and in college, if they ever felt that they were discriminated against. And they said, no, I've I've never had anybody say anything to me. I've never felt discriminated against, but yet they knew about checking that Asian box was going to work against them. So this was kind of near and dear to me when I saw that this was going in front of the Supreme Court to see how this played out. I, I just couldn't believe that the Biden administration, that any administration would argue that it's okay to discriminate against Asians because we want to promote the other minorities, but Asians don't count. It's kind of like you have minorities, and then you have this subclass of minorities that don't count, which is basically the Asians. I don't know. Sounds racist to me. And I even looked at Corey Bush's response, and, and she makes a statement about this, and, and she basically doesn't even mention Asians. She she basically says, oh, this is discrimination against blacks, browns, and indigenous people, but never mentions Asians. Why is that? Well, it's it's a convenient truth truth for them because they don't want to talk about that. They just want to talk about their minority status because they think that that's more important than their than, than the other minority statuses. So they're prioritizing minorities. I don't know. Sounds like discrimination. Sounds like racism. Whenever you're making decisions based on the color of somebody's skin, whether it's black, Hispanic, Asian, indigenous, you know, Indians, whatever, if you're making decisions based on skin color, that's racist. And so here we have our um, federal government, uh, you know, the Biden administration arguing that it's okay in this situation because they're only Chinese people. They're only Asians. They don't really count. And they didn't really go through the discrimination that blacks went through, you know, back during slavery. Well, I would beg to differ. I did the history. I went back and did the research. Did you know that Asians or Chinese, mainly Chinese, were the only race that were outlawed by law in the United States that they could not become U.S. citizens? And the only time that that law went off the books was during World War II when we were allies with the Chinese. So from about the mid-1800s, actually a little bit later, about 1887 or 82, I believe, is when you had this exclusionary act that basically said that Chinese cannot become U.S. citizens by law. And that didn't come off the books until World War II. So who's being discriminated against? So I think there's a fair argument that Chinese or Asians have been discriminated against as much as Blacks or any other minority group. But yet the Biden administration basically said that they wanted to pick winners and losers. It's okay, you know, to throw Asians under the bus so long as you take care of Blacks and Hispanics. And what was interesting is nobody was arguing to the fact that 
okay, you're right. You're right. You, you know, this is discrimination against Asians. Let's make sure that the Asians don't get discriminated. Let's make sure we keep affirmative action, but let's roll the Asians into it to make sure that they're protected the same as Blacks and Hispanics. No one even mentioned that. So nobody cared about making it a, an even playing field, which is what they were. They keep saying that, that that's all they wanted with a, affirmative action. Nobody cared about that. What they basically were saying is, look, we're racist. You, you know, we don't care about Asians at all. We just want to make sure that Blacks and Hispanics are taken care of. I, 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 I don't get where that whole argument comes about. And if we're a society that wants to get to the point to where racism is gone, and, and to be honest with you, I think we were on a great path for that until Obama and some others came into power. Definitely Biden has regenerated this. They want all the decisions to be decided based on race and color of someone's skin. They want you to notice the differences. And, and we're trying to have our society that it doesn't matter what the race is. So obviously, if we were in a true state of um, utopia, if you want to call it that, there wouldn't even be the box. The box wouldn't exist. The box would be gone. It would be removed. It wouldn't be necessary. No reason to have it. Does it really matter when you're applying to a college what race you are? Does that matter? Now, if you want to put in some kind of um, um, what you have to submit, I, I mind block there. When you write your essay to, to the school, if you want to put something in there about how certain things have affected you, that you've overcome adversity, then write it in your essay. But that box doesn't need to exist. And in fact, you know, we're going to reach a point in our society that that it doesn't really matter from the standpoint of, you know, we go through so many generations, we don't know what race somebody is and we get confused. And I, I've constantly, or not constantly, but I've run across this where I'm like, you know, I, I don't know what race they are and, and nor should it matter because we should be judging people based on their actions and what they say and how they act. And so we need to replace the box. I think someone just made a suggestion. We should just have American. You, you know, you check a box. I'm American. I am an American. And, and I think that's a great idea from the standpoint of race doesn't matter. It's it's irrelevant at this point. And as long as you want to continue to make it relevant, then that's probably where the concerns are with racism. Um, now, another point that I want that I want to kind of move on to is the standpoint of how the Supreme Court, they make these rulings. And last year, they made a ruling about the Second Amendment in, in the state of New York. The state of New York had a law that basically said your right to carry a firearm was only in your house. So in your house, you can carry a firearm. You can have a firearm. You got to keep it in your house. You can carry it if you want to carry it in your house, but you can't carry outside your house, unless you have a concealed carry permit, makes sense. But then they weren't issuing them to anybody. So last year, I think it was in um, June of 2020, the Supreme Court said that the law in New York is not constitutional. You have to issue people conce reasonable concealed carry permits, and people can carry outside their home. That is a constitutional right to bear arms. You can carry a gun in the state of New York. So they threw that law out. And what they do is within three months, the state of New York comes up with a new law and they know it's unconstitutional, but they don't care. 
because it just gets it back in the cycle. It'll take three, four, five more years for this new law to get back to the Supreme Court. And during that time, they can enforce this law. And, and then when the Supreme Court throws it out, saying, no, that's not good either, then they'll come up with another one. So the law is, and I found this on the internet where the mayor of New York City on August 31st of 2022 puts a statement out here about the new ruling. And he actually says that the Bruin rule or the Supreme Court ruled um, against Bruin or whatever, the century old pop, proper use gun licensing provision violates the Second Amendment, which means you can actually carry a gun outside your house. Not everybody's going to attack you in your house. So this new law comes into effect, which he says limits. You have to have training, you know, to get a concealed carry permit makes sense. You know, I think Colorado has the same thing. I never went to the training because I was a cop. So I was excluded to having to go to that training. And then certain areas you can't carry. Well, in the state of Colorado, I mean, you can't carry in certain federal places. You're not going to carry in the airport, the courthouse, things. So that makes sense that you would limit some things. And they actually say Times Square. And it's like, okay. So don't go to Times Square because you can't carry a firearm there and protect yourself in Times Square other than other places. But then it says this new law that basically says that you cannot carry in a private establishment unless they have explicit permission from the property owner. Signage will be posted around the borders of Times Square. Okay, it makes sense. And also optional signage templates for property owners. So basically what they're saying is, Unless a private establishment or business puts a sign up saying concealed weapons are okay here, you can't carry a concealed weapon. So based on no information, so if you're carrying your handgun concealed and you have a permit, you can't go into any stores unless they have a sign saying, hey, you can bring your weapons into our store. Now, who's going to do this? I mean, who's going to put a sign up saying concealed carry permitted here? So you have to have a uh, explicit approval process for where you can carry your concealed handguns. And, and so they know that this probably isn't going to fly with the Supreme Court. But yet, I mean, who, who on earth would carry a gun? They could never go into a store, you know, anywhere in New York City. So basically, you can't defend yourself. And you, there's no place in these stores to check your weapons at the door. So they've effectively wiped it out again, you know, to be able to, to walk around New York City with concealed carry to protect yourself. So, you know, that's just crazy. And But we'll, we'll wait three, five years from now. It, it'll come back and, you know, they'll probably rule and, and throw it out again. And then they'll come up with some other type of law or rule in the in New York City. I have a national concealed carry permit, which states cannot regulate. So I'm excited about that. I can carry everywhere to include Washington, D.C. So that's great for me because I'm a retired cop, but not for everyone else just trying to protect themselves with weapons and, and specifically concealed carry. So what I said Monday that I wanted to talk about a little bit, and this is a little bit politically motivated, but that's okay. That's what this whole show is about, is I wanted to compare Hunter Biden with Al Capone. So what an interesting comparison. One of the most notorious gangsters of the 30s compared to Hunter Biden. But here's, here's my point. Al Capone was convicted of tax evasion. That's what he was convicted of, and that's what he went to prison for. So Hunter Biden has been investigated for tax evasion. Now, he also has a gun law uh, or a gun violation, which is he filled out a form to get a gun 
and he said that he was mentally sound or not on drugs and he obviously was on drugs so he lied on a federal gun form which i believe is a felony so he should have to answer for that i'll get to that in a minute well let's just talk about tax evasion what's interesting is al capone when he realized that they were going to get him on this tax evasion he tried to cut a deal he he cut a deal with these prosecutors sound familiar with hunter biden cut a deal with federal prosecutors so in June, how convenient, June of 1931, Al Capone um, agreed to plead guilty to tax evasion for two and a half years in prison. Hunter Biden did the same thing in June of 2023. Just a coincidence that they did this in June? I don't know. But they did the same thing. And then the judge in July of 1931 threw it out and said, we're not taking this plea deal. And I think we're all hoping that with the Hunter Biden case, that the judge throws it out and says, you know what, we're not we're not going to take this plea deal. You, you know, it's just not right because tax evasion is a big deal. You know, and he thought two and a half years in prison wasn't enough for tax evasion. Huh. How interesting that Hunter Biden isn't going to get any prison time. And so how many people can do tax evasion? And I'm going to tell you the level of the tax evasion here in a minute. And not get any jail time. I mean, they always want jail time. Prosecutors always want jail time. You know, so in this case, why is Hunter Biden? I I think we know why, because his dad's the president and obviously the attorney general Garland is 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 involved. And if they did a true investigation, I'm sure they would find that there's been a lot of favors that have been paid or played or used in this Hunter Biden case. So how much taxes did Al Capone Oh, that he got sentenced. Now, just to let you know that he was convicted. Um, He was convicted for two years or multiple years of tax evasion, and he got 11 years. So Al Capone was was given 11 years for tax evasion. So how much did they say when they charged him were these tax evasion? It was about $215,000 that they said that Al Capone did not pay in taxes. Well, what a coincidence. Hunter Biden, $200,000. So almost the exact same amount is what they say Hunter Biden owes. And they both tried to do the same thing. Al Capone tried to pay the taxes, you know, before this, he got charged or whatever. Hunter Biden, you know, went in a few years later, I think it was in 2021, that he paid the taxes, but he still didn't pay enough. And that's where the the over $200,000 that he still owes. So he did, you know, originally in, in, in 17, 2017 and 2018, he didn't file any tax returns or didn't declare this money, the the multi-million that he made. Um, But then he tried to pay and said, okay, I paid my tax. And they're like, dude, you're off by 200,000. This is crazy. He he obviously tried to evade taxes about the same amount. So Al Capone got 11 years for that. Hunter Biden's not going to get 11 years. He's not going to get 11 months of prison time. And, let, you know, hopefully this judge is going to throw it out, but he probably won't. He'll probably take it and say, you know, man, yeah, this is a pretty tough sentence. What? You know, he, he evaded, he knowingly evaded taxes for multiple years, and he's not going to go to prison at all when Al Capone went for 11 years. So he definitely got a better deal than Al Capone did. But, um, you know, it's because people are taking care of him. I mean, there's just no no doubt about it. So 
Now, the gun charge, this is really interesting because this is definitely a felony. I mean, there's just no doubt about it, is my understanding. And so, well, actually, tax evasion is a felony, but they're not calling it tax evasion. What they're charging them with, what is this? Um, a tax-related misdemeanor is, is what they're calling it, um, failing to pay his taxes. So they're not even charging him with tax evasion at this point. And, and then you have this felony gun possession charge, and they're going to give him a deferred sentence. Now, in, in my business now, working for a lot of defense attorneys, that is one of the, the most ultimate goals. If you know that your client is guilty and that they did, they, they did an illegal activity, if you can get a deferred sentence, that's a huge win. Because what happens is, is if you don't have any other charges put against you for a certain period of time, three, five, seven years, I think there's a standard amount of time in Colorado. I can't remember what it was or what it is. It's like you never did it. But what's interesting is, is during this deferred sentence, so let's say you had a three-year deferred sentence. So if you didn't do any, had no other charges in the next three years, it's like it never happened. You're still considered a convicted felon for those three years. I don't think Hunter Biden's going to be that way. I, I think in his situation, it, it's going to be totally, they're talking about some kind of diversion program. So I don't even think it's a deferred sentence. Whenever you have one of these um uh, you know, they give you an opportunity to go to some class or some diversion program. And they used to have it in Colorado. They had it for kids that were doing sexting because they didn't want these kids to have um, criminal records. So they sent them to this diversion program. They'd go sit in this class for a Saturday afternoon saying about how sending naked pictures of yourself on the internet or on your cell phone is bad. And then it's like it never happened. So Hunter Biden, it sounds like, is not even getting a deferred sentence where he has to fly straight for three years. It's like it just never, it, it just went away. And even said, it that's actually not going to be part of the um, plea bargain. That they're basically just, the whole gun thing is just going away. It's like it never happened. So are you talking about a special deal when you have someone dead to rights why would somebody, a prosecutor, who has the form, he can show the, the jury, here's the form that Hunter Biden signed and he checked the box. We obviously know he was a drug addict. We got video from this laptop that he's doing all these drugs and stuff. He obviously lied on this form. This is a slam dunk case. Why would you plea it and just say, it's like it never happened? Because it's a special freaking deal. I mean, that's what this is all about with Hunter Biden. So the problem is Al Capone wasn't named Al Biden, you know, and he didn't have a dad who was the president so he could get these sweet deals. And, and the thing that, that's also interesting is here's a statement from his attorney, from Hunter Biden's attorney. He says, with the announcement of two agreements between my client, Hunter Biden, and the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Delaware, it is my understanding that the five-year investigation into Hunter is resolved. So it's over. So the reason they want to do this is because they want all this you know, to be over with. And so if they cut this deal and the judge accepts it, where does double jeopardy come into play? You know, they're going to say, oh, no, that was all part of that one initial tax evasion. So if, if 
Congress finds millions of dollars that Hunter has gotten through these other deals that it appears some of this evidence is coming out. He can't be charged with it again. It's been settled. You know, so I I think there's a lot still going on, but I think they're trying to get this off the books as early as they can before the election next year and other things like that. And you just got to wonder, you're, you're letting this guy hang out in the White House. He's basically living in the White House. So when we made fun of Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy, for drinking beer and hanging out in Georgia and stuff, this is nothing compared to Hunter Biden, who's basically hanging out in the White House, maybe in the West Wing, if we can do some DNA testing on the baggie holding that cocaine. Do we really know that he's not doing drugs in the White House? Somebody is. But what a sweet gig. I mean, what is he? He doesn't do anything. He hangs out in the White House, gets all the free food, drives around. He's basically the person propping up his dad. He's the one walking around with him now a lot of times saying, oh, dad, you know, that's not, you know, Moscow didn't invade Iraq. You you know, that's Ukraine. You got to remember this stuff. And what's this about? God bless the queen, whoever that is. Maybe he just likes a rock group that used to be around. I don't know what the deal is. But basically, um, Hunter, if you want to say, because some of them are actually saying that Hunter Deal's not getting a very good deal, that this is pretty tough. I would say to them, you're idiots. This is the sweetest deal I've ever heard in my life. Um, a lot sweeter than Al Capone got. And I've never seen where anyone has gotten a diversion program uh, on a gun, a felony gun case that basically it's not even defer. I still can't believe that. It's like it never happened. So um, at this point, I'm trying to see if if John's around. I've, I've ended my political rampage for the day. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I don't see John St. Augustine at this point jumping on. So what I'll talk about until he does jump on is, you know, John and I have worked on a lot of cases as law enforcement. I was a detective. John was the uh, commander of investigations. So he oversaw a lot of it. He was a inspector before that. John is amazing from the standpoint of he never forgets anything. I forget names all the time. I mean, I'll, I'll, and if you came, if you just walked up to me and just said real quick, Hey, what's my name? I'd be like, dude, you, you got to give me like 30 seconds. Um, so I can, you know, I can remember my, my, for some reason, my brain just doesn't work that way. My wife can remember every name of everyone we've ever met. And that's why I just keep her around. So she can remind me of, of all these names. John is amazing. He can remember cases, dates, everything that is involved in this stuff. And so when it comes to warrants, this is kind of a an, an interesting part. Is when I was in law enforcement, whenever I wanted to search like a cell phone or some kind of technology, I, I always just said, I want it all. I want it all. I never even thought twice about just saying, um, any and all data to include, but not limited to. And I get these very generic warrants and I give them to judges and, and they would sign them for us to search kind of like a house, but we would search this technology. And, and so that's changed in Colorado. The, the, the Colorado Supreme Court has ruled in, in a case called Coke, just like you drink Coke, 
that you can't have these overly broad search warrants for digital evidence. So in a house, let's say if I'm looking for drugs in a house, I'm working a drug case. So I want to search this house for drugs or something a little more um, convenient. I'm searching for classified documents at Donald Trump's mansion in Florida. So if I'm searching for documents, should I really be looking in Melania's dresser and looking at her underwear? Interesting point. There's something that's always put in, in every search warrant, items of indicia. And it goes to show that you actually have residence at that house. It's a information that shows that, hey, you own the house, you live there, you have residency there. And you just use this as a point to just show that, you know, yeah, the guy lived there. Well, in law enforcement, do you really need to, to search for? What if you walk in and just find their gas bill, their phone bill, whatever bill, and you take a picture of it and it has their name on it? Doesn't that kind of resolve the whole issue? with indicia of ownership, it does. But law enforcement doesn't stop there. So long as they know that they have this items of indicia, they just keep searching everywhere. So if I'm looking for a stolen car in somebody's garage, but I say I want to have items of indicia in the house, I can look in every drawer. Well, what if I find something really quick? Like right off the bat, I find something that shows an item of indicia. What should happen is law enforcement should say, hey, guys, just to let everybody know, we've already found our item of indicia showing residence. So stop looking for that. So get out of the drawers, get out of whatever you're searching for. Now we're just looking for a stolen car. Now we're just looking for laptops. We're just looking for whatever it is that we're there searching for, business records. It could be anything. But they don't do that. They just keep searching and whatever they find, they're going to act on. Well, the courts have ruled that these overly broad warrants, which are basically called fishing expeditions, which the federal government is very good at writing warrants like that, um, that that's not really right, and especially with, with cell phones. If there's a specific reason that you're looking at a cell phone, you need to limit the search of that cell phone. If I'm looking for text messages, let's say... I have um, a case where someone is perping on a, a child or whatever, and I and they've been texting each other. That would make total sense to get the um, suspect cell phone and look at their text messages, maybe their contact list, maybe even their call log to, to see who they're calling. That would all seem reasonable. But do you need to search other areas on the cell phone? So what the state Supreme Court said was that you have to be very specific in your warrants to say why it is I need this specific information. And that's what the Coke case was all about. I just recently in a case, and I see that that John just joined, I believe. Um, so I'll finish this up. But I was listening to testimony and I can't be specific because the case is still um, going on. But their person said, I don't care what's in a search warrant. I don't care if it's limited, if the search warrant says it's limited to a date range. So think about it. If I commit a crime on April 1st, do I need to look at stuff from March 1st or January 1st? 
maybe a day or two before the crime and a day or two after the crime, unless there's some reason you can articulate in the search warrant that I need to look at three, four months worth of data. Well, this guy said on the stand under oath, I don't care. I don't care what the judge says. I get it all. I take it all. I extract everything off of that phone and I give it all to the detective and let them determine the dilemma on the search range. Wow. That was amazing to hear that because he was basically saying, I don't care what a search warrant, what a judge tells me I can and can't do. I'm extracting. I'm going to search the whole house. I'm going to look in Melania's drawers and see and look at her underwear because I can't, you know, because no one can stop me because I'm law enforcement and there's no rules to what I can do. So that that's an issue that we've been running across. And um, I, I might as well just kind of finish this up. Law enforcement also has software that they won't let anyone else see or test. And I found two um, examples of where this has happened. One's called Torrential Downpour. This is a piece of software that has to do with peer-to-peer communications that the government uses to spy, spy, that's the word, spy on individuals that might be trading in illegal images and they use this and it's running. Multiple law enforcement agencies use this software. And then when they actually find someone and search or whatever, when you ask to test it, that, you know, you say, look, as a defense, my job is to try to defend this individual who's being persecuted or prosecuted by the government. I We need a copy of this software so we can test it. You know, this is like saying, you know, you're, the DNA matched you, but we're not going to give you a sample of the blood. So you can test the DNA to, you know, show yay or nay with your expert, whether the blood is their DNA. So they use this software, Torrential Downpour, won't let you have a, a copy. I recently worked on a case that's, that has been um, resolved where the judge said, yeah, wow, that's that's interesting. Give them a copy of the software. Well, they didn't, you know, even though they were compelled by the judge, they didn't give us a copy of the software. They dropped all the charges and moved on. So instead of actually trying to prosecute this person and give us a copy of the software to test to see if it's legit, they just dropped all the charges and walked away. Because for God's sakes, they're not going to let us look at this software and they'll just move on to the next case and hope that person doesn't have enough money to get a good attorney or buy an expert like me who can come in and know the right questions for the government and say, and and in their reports, they don't even list what software they used. You have to go back to them and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. It says here you use some kind of, it says a a, a forensic software package. I want to know specifically what that software was. And then when they admit it, you go, oh, it's torrential downpour. What a surprise. I want a copy. I want to test it. They don't even want to tell you what the software is called. Then there's another one that's called GrayKey. It has this software allows you to break into iPhones. Do you remember the big thing where the federal government, the FBI wanted to get into these cell phones and they didn't have any software to do it? Well, Gray Keys figured out a way to break in to, to cell phones. Okay, I want a copy of the software so we can test it. Nope, nope, can't have it, can't do it. Here's an interesting part that I found out about it. It can break into cell phones and it doesn't log it on the cell phone. Every time you get into your cell phone, every time on, on your cell phone, when, when you unlock it, it's logged 
inside of a log inside your cell phone. So you, so you can go through and look to see every time your cell phone's been unlocked or locked or, and, you know, airplane mode, all kinds of stuff. But when you run this software that breaks into the iPhone, it doesn't log it. So there's no way to track whether the government used the software without a search warrant because it's not tracked in the phone. So they can pull it out of evidence, use gray key, look at it all they want. You can't prove that they ever touched the phone because it's not logged. The software doesn't log that it unlocked the phone. So these are the kind of things that are interesting that we're, we're dealing with now with the government. And when you question them and you ask them, hey, I'd like to get a copy of that software so I can do some testing. They, they don't want you to get a copy and they will argue with the judge that there's no reason it's been third party peer reviewed by another federal agency. We don't need to do it. And so, but all right, John, I've talked way too much. Um, John, you're on. If you can bring John on. Oh, are you there, buddy? So I, I kind of, I think I kind of spoke a little too much here on a lot of this stuff, but um, I was just wondering, is, is there a case, you know, um, that you can think of, I was, I've been talking about search warrants and stuff. Is there any thoughts that you've had during this time that I was bringing some things up? I didn't really hear a whole lot on what you said, but I mean, <laughs> the, the biggest thing on, you know, search warrants market, you know, that we're seeing a lot recently is that, I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's kind of weird because we're in a time right now where, you know, if you can't file a lawsuit against somebody, What's happening is we're starting to weaponize the prosecutor's office, right? The district attorney's office for reasons when we can't file a lawsuit. Um, you know, prime example of that is um, there's a case. I don't know if you remember, there was a there was a guy who was, who was charged with a number of crimes. Um, his name was Ray Marshall. And, and I don't know if you remember, but in that particular case, what happened was they were attempting to file a lawsuit against him. They meaning a group of businessmen because he was awarded um, the contract for the U S Olympic training center or the U S Olympic uh, headquarters, you know, um, here in Colorado Springs. And what happened was um, he went through the proper channels of obtaining that, that contract, getting the bid, you know, winning the, the award for it. And somebody wasn't too happy about it. And so what happened was there was some local businessmen here in Cara Springs who wanted to file a lawsuit. But when they didn't file a lawsuit or couldn't find a lawsuit, file a lawsuit, they ended up um, getting themselves behind a guy who was going to be running for district attorney. And you, and you know him. He's Dan May, right? And so just a little bit of history here. Dan May gets into office. And one of the first things he does is he initiates an investigation into Ray Marshall. And then shortly thereafter, um, he's charged with like 40 plus charges uh, of, of, you know, of very various crimes, which by the way, um, he ends up going to trial winning and they end up filing additional charges unrelated to the initial 40 plus charges. Anyway, long story short, this guy goes on for almost 12 years before, before he finally has all the charges dropped and how that kind of relates to search warrants is that, you know, we're just, you know, there's, there's some really shady things that are going on. I mean, we have, you know, you're supposed to swear, you know, as the affiant that all the information that you have is accurate. Right. And what we're finding out is that um, we're seeing a lot of things that aren't being presented 
that could potentially be exculpatory. And it's dangerous, right? We live in a time now where, you know, instead of, you know, somebody committing a crime and it's a crime and there's elements of the crime. Now, you know, you can, heck, you know, this market happened with me. You can get indicted for kidnapping somebody you never met. And yep. so, you know, there's a, there's a danger in that. And, you know, when you ask about search warrants, I'm, I apologize. I got on a little late, but, you know, I think what we're missing really in, in when you look at just the criminal justice system is that defense attorneys are supposed to defend their clients zealously and prosecutors are supposed to seek justice but what is end up happening now is that it, it's it's more of a win loss type of thing and so they're all, they're seeking to win as opposed to seeking to you know instead of seeking justice and so um it's a dangerous time you know who knows where this is all going to go but um i can tell you you know we're seeing i know you've seen it i've seen it just a lot of cases that you just go what is going on you know, I, I can give you an example of a case, and I don't know if I ever brought this up with you, but um, I represented a gentleman or helped in, in in his defense. And this this poor kid was charged with sexual exploitation of a child. That means he possessed child pornography, essentially, right? Well, one of the elements of that crime is that you knowingly possess child pornography. Right. Well, what happens when they seize this Poor kids, computers, his cell phone, they, they seize everything. And there's not a single image, Mark, not a single image of sexually exploitive material. In other words, not a single image of child pornography. Yet he was charged by the government with possessing sexually exploitive material. You know, and unfortunately, this poor kid was an Air Force Academy uh, cadet, was supposed to graduate with his class, end up taking the jury less than 20 minutes that he was not guilty, but the damage was already done. Um, you know, and, and, you know, from a prosecutorial standpoint, you know, we both have worked for the government and I can tell you with 1000% confidence that we never arrested somebody where there was not evidence to support the arrest. And right. by that same token, Mark, you, you remember a few occasions where I refused to arrest certain people because there wasn't enough to arrest them. And yet, you know, the direction right. was go make the arrest. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy times. And I think we've really lost focus. I think a lot of attorneys who, who are in the defense work, you know, um, you know, there's the prosecutorial side or the defense side have really lost focus as to what their role is, right? One is supposed to defend zealously. The other is supposed to, you know, seek justice. And I, I, I just think our criminal justice is, system is is quite broke, to be honest with you. I think what we're finding out is that whoever has more resources is typically um, who can stay in the game to try and fight the charges. What you're finding right now is a lot of people get charged with crimes and they just don't know what to do. They're lost. They they have no understanding of the the criminal justice system. And so, you know, they get offered a plea and they take the plea because, they don't feel like there's any other options available to them. Sorry, I might have. That's one of the things you were saying, like this guy that you knew. Um, they hit him with like 42 counts or 40 counts or some large number. Right. That's a strategy. That that's straight up a strategy by a district attorney to to get a plea deal. 
So yeah. if I hit him and they, and it's the same thing with, well, I don't want to bring up Donald Trump, but it's the same, you, you know, I've seen it where I look at this and it's like, wait a minute, you're charging, you know, way too many times for one event. You know, right. it should be one crime, you know, one statue, right. one crime. Yeah, you they know, use that count. as leverage. You're exactly That's leverage right. to get a they deal. They use it as leverage in the hopes that the defendant will take a plea because if they take be a plea, overwhelmed, it's a victory. It's a victory if they get a plea. Right. You know? so, and, and, yeah. and and like you said, they may not have any evidence. And, I, and I've definitely worked on cases where the evidence has been incredibly thin. I, I actually worked on a case. It was a homicide case where they had no evidence that this kid was involved. In fact, one of the people who were involved in the homicide actually said he wasn't there. And they had this information, you, you know, that one of their own people who confessed and was there said, no, that guy wasn't there, but they still let the charges fly. I wrote something up that basically said, look, based on his cell phone records, you know, I can't say whether he was there or not, but his cell phone was definitely not there. And then recently after, you know, shortly after my report, they end up dropping all the charges. Yeah. But, you know, they need to be seeking the truth. And like you said, justice, right. and that needs to be what motivates them. But you've got to understand that the end does not justify the means. So they got to play by the rules. And one mm. of the things I was talking about is with these search warrants on on digital devices, on cell phones. If a judge gives you a limitation that you can only get data from you know this date to this date, and then you mm. have people under oath saying, I don't care. I'm I'm extracting all the evidence. You mm. know, I, I don't care what the you know. That's when you just have to sit back and say, whoa, that, that's a problem, you, you know, th that they're not even trying to do the, the right thing. Um, you know, and I, and I think a lot, sorry to interrupt you, but, you know, I think a lot of people will probably not um, look fondly on me regarding this next comment. But, you uh, know, the, the the whole fact of immunity, absolute immunity for prosecutors, oh. it has to go away, right? I mean, if you're going to go and take somebody's life away freedom. from them, right? You're gonna you're gonna take their freedom away from them. Then and you know darn well that you have no evidence or that these charges are bogus, there should be accountability, right? There's accountability in doctors, there's accountability with lawyers who aren't prosecutors, there's accountability for engineers, there's accountability for every occupation, except if you're a prosecutor, you have absolute immunity and it doesn't matter what happens. You have no recourse as an individual to seek any kind of, you know, civil remedy because, you know, the damage is already done. The bottom line is, I mean, Mark, you and I have worked cases more recently where teachers, right, have been accused of certain crimes and it ends up being something like a crush from one of the students, right? And the student wants to get with the teacher. Teacher's like, you know, no, we can't do that. You know, I'm married or I have a girlfriend or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden there's an allegation that the teacher did right. something appropriate, right? Well, the kid did that, right? Because they wanted to be with this teacher and didn't get to be with the teacher. So they make these allegations. And what does the school do? A school does, here's what they do. They say, immediately, we're gonna suspend the teacher pending the outcome of the investigation, right? So then law enforcement works on it for a few months. They find out that there's no wrongdoing, but guess what? The damage is already done. The bell yeah. has already been rung. The ship has already sailed. There's no way for you to be able to go back and say, oh, wait, 
we can undo everything that was just done. All this damage that was done to this poor individual, there's, we're sorry, they just dropped the charges. And in the meantime, this, this particular individual will never teach again because anybody who wanted to just even do a simple Google search on that teacher will know that we'll there's obligations and there's too much liability, right? There's too much liability. You know that from a school board. Why would it, why would it, why would a administration hire somebody who may have a background involving harming a child? Even though the allegation is not true, how many people will go, you know what, we're going to disregard this and we're going to go ahead and, and, you know, do it anyway. We're going to go ahead. There's no way, you know, like you said, I was on the school board for 12 years. I think we hired four or five um, superintendents, Mm -hmm. at least two or three that I can, I could name off. And if anything came back, I remember like when we went through the initial resumes or whatever, we handed it to our HR person in the room and said, all right, here's, here's the five we want you to do background checks on. And, and then if anything came back, oh, you know, 10 years ago, he was accused of, of this or whatever. be like, well, you know, the other four look good. Right. (laughs) You know, you're not going to say anything, but it's like, you know, well, the others, you know, don't have that. Right. You know, why would you roll the dice? And so it's very easy for lives to be ruined. And, And I will tell you from my experience, it doesn't appear like district attorneys care if they ruin somebody's life. I mean, that, that's just not part of the equation of, well, hey, let's be careful. I don't want to ruin this guy. Let's do a little more investigation before. No, let's arrest him, put him in jail. Exactly. We'll just, you know, we'll let him look, sweat look him in jail. Yeah, look at look at this case involving Morphew. And I don't know a lot of the specifics, right? Yeah. But you've got a prosecutor who's out there saying, you know, we're close, but the body's in a difficult place, right? Yeah, we're, we're close Why? to finding a body we haven't found in three years. Correct. Why even make that comment? How about you do this? How about you go find the body? Then when you find the body, you make a comment. How about you not throw out into the universe, right, for everybody to read? I mean, what was the purpose for making that statement? I mean, really, let's think about that. You get out as a prosecutor and you say, we're near the body, it's just in a difficult place, right? And the reason for that is because the person who was initially arrested for it, her husband, right, um, he was let go because, you know, the trial, they didn't have the evidence they needed. Wasn't to any start. evidence. Right. So my point is, look, if you still think he did it, find the body, then make the arrest. Don't go out and make right. statements right now because all it does is it just, you know, think about it. People read a story like that. They're like, oh, the husband has to be involved. It must be him. It couldn't be anybody else. But right. wait a second. it could be somebody else. And, and and I wonder if, you know, I wonder if they're tracking his cell phone again. You know, I just wonder this because, you know, it's it, it seems relatively easy to get warrants to track somebody's cell phone. So what you do is, is you get a ping warrant so you can get their location data. Sure. And then you stir it up by saying, oh, we're close to discovering the body to see if somebody drives up into the mountains. Right. You, you know, and it's like, guys, you know, that's for one, you don't have probable cause. You already like charged this guy once before and then you drop the charges, you know. Right. I guess the but way yeah, I look this at is, this, Mark, I mean, think I, I try to think of things in a more logical standpoint and not, you know, put the politics aside. But if it's so difficult for them to get to this body, 
what made it so easy for her husband to put the body wherever it is? Right. Exactly. right? Like, I mean, I just asked myself, Once he that. Dropped like, it how is it so easy for, how was it so easy for the husband to do it? But yet it's so difficult for the government to do it who have unlimited resources. If they need a paratroop, some, you know, some, some sophisticated people in there to go do that. I mean, they have the resources. Exactly. But you can you're fly a drone that, anywhere. Yeah. But you're telling me. So that I think it's all BS. Um, they're, they're trying to stir. And this this is all coming from a guy, Mark Hurlbert, who's the worst district attorney in the state of Colorado. That's my opinion. Can't <laughs> sue me now because it's my opinion. Um, he's the one who falsely accused John here. And he openly admitted in court that he had no evidence. And he, he's just a POS, you, you know, from the standpoint of he doesn't care about doing what's right. You know, he's just. He, he could ruin lives. And, and he's I think he's admitted that during a deposition where he doesn't care. You know, I can I can put the hot seat on somebody just to see if they'll break, you, you know, and that's just not right. Right. Um, and, and yes, see, Hurlbert is, is not elected right now. He was up in Aspen years ago and he got his ass handed to him in the Colby Bryant case. That's his notorious case. Right. right. And then he's never been an elected official since. Um, he worked for Brockler for a while. Brockler fired him. Interesting point. Um, that's what I heard. That's the rumor. I mean, I don't know for sure. Um, and then now he's back up in the mountains working for another um, district attorney up there. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care that he ruins lives and makes these wild crazy. We're close to the body. It's just in a difficult location. That's BS. Um, my opinion. Um I guess we're kind of running a little bit long. Sorry, sorry, John. I didn't give you a lot of time no to, no, to talk about stuff. I always um, enjoy this. It's it's and good. We about- we have it is fun. It's a great change of pace for me. I kind of have to watch what I say sometimes because you know we're working on cases and stuff. But the bottom line is to understand. We do have a, a couple more minutes. Is um, you know people always ask me what how on earth after being in law enforcement for as long as you know we both were in law enforcement for seventeen years. How can you work for the, the defense? And and I always say the same thing. The system only works if every chair is filled. And for many years, defense never had experts like John and I who could really question law enforcement and their actions, you know, how with me on how to deal with digital evidence, John more of how, how they investigate major crimes. And they don't like to be um, called out or, or said, you know, why do you, why did you do it this way? Why, why did you do this? Why'd you do this? And they don't like that because they, they like to just be able to lay it all out there and say, this is what we did in our investigation. You know, and I, I guess my standpoint, you know, you, you, and we have gotten a lot of flack, right. For working for the defense, right. The, the dogs. Yep. And I guess the way I look at this is, you know, an investigator is, is responsible for doing what for gathering facts, so either the facts are there that that you know right, the evidence is there to support whatever allegations are being made or they're not, and if those allegations um, are are false, then guess what? We're going to be able to expose and show that there's no evidence to support those allegations. By the same token, if somebody is charged with a crime and there's plenty, and Mark, we've done many of these cases where there's evidence to support that the crime happened and that this person is responsible for it, guess what happens? Yep. They get convicted or they take a plea. 
right? So for me, it's not a matter of whether you work for the prosecutor or you work for the defense. The reality is what's the truth? Where are the facts? And if, and here's the bottom line, you know, nobody really wants to do anything. You know, they want to be pro blue and I get it, right? The thin blue line. I get that. We were part of that, but it should be pro truth. That's what it should be about. And so the defense is not, you know, if the, if the defense has information that shows that there was something that wasn't done properly, right, violated our constitutional rights, wouldn't you want to know about that? Yep, exactly. But yeah, actually, we should spend more time on that. We've run out of time at this point, unfortunately. Okay. But, you know, to talk about the whole business of um, the truth. As, as an yeah. expert, I consider myself an expert. All I care about is the truth, you know, and let the truth come out. And where the chips fall, they fall. So, hey, everybody, um, have a great week. Chuck and Julie be back on Friday for Crazy Friday or whatever they call it, Party Friday. So, and you'll see John and I sometime in the future um, whenever they let us do this again. So have a great week. Thank you all. Thanks, Mark.